2: That's stamps.com. Code program.
3: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Before we get started today, I just wanted to thank you all for the reviews. We've zoomed past 150 five-star reviews in the iTunes stores in the US and UK, which is amazing. So please do keep those rolling in. If you like the show, it takes like two seconds really it's that quick or perhaps a tad longer if you're feeling loquacious but it really does help others find the show clues so please do keep those coming in and one other note just seven episodes into season two we're on the cusp of 100,000 listens which is amazing Uh, when we started this thing which was really a bit on a whim the first couple days we had something like 40 people download it. it was pretty dire so we've come a long way and for that I Thank you, sincerely. But of course, we're still working very hard to make the show better, tracking down the best guests, putting together the special reports, and I thought, why not set a new goal? Let's go for a million. Let's go for it. Tell a friend. We'll be a unicorn yet. We're not. But it's worth trying, I think, no? But enough of that. Let's get to the business end of proceedings and on to today's show.
4: Yo. Technology. What is it all
5: about? the Taliban or the Soviets, whoever knew that, you know, families were escaping would stop them and take anything that they had, you know, any money, any gold, anything that they had. So it was a traumatic experience for any family that had gone through that. And we ended up in Pakistan for seven years.
3: So this week we're doing something a bit different after back to back billionaires these last couple of weeks with Brian Chesky of Airbnb and Patrick Collison of Stripe, who are both great. I wanted to introduce you to someone who is on the other end of that entrepreneur continuum and her name is Sophia Mafouz. Sophia is only 26, but has lived quite a bit of life already, and when in 10 years time she's running a massive tech company and gracing the covers of magazines, you can say that you heard about her way back when on that show, Danny in the Valley. I met Sophia at a business brunch here in San Francisco actually last month, and we got to talking, and as she unfurled her experience... Both personal and professional, I found it truly fascinating and uh, inspiring, to be honest, and I think you will too. She has started a couple companies, won a load of business pitch competitions. She recently left a position as the head of operations of Girls in Tech and is now casting about for her next big idea. I think you'll find her experience both interesting and edifying. We talk about her trying to make it as a woman and an immigrant in the Silicon Valley Shark Tank, raising money, then giving it back, and what hitchhiking taught her about startups. Without further ado, here's Sophia.
5: Hello, how's it going? I love it. Coming you? over. Yeah, how are you? Oh my goodness,
3: are you not cold? No, it's fine. It's- It's
5: actually not that cold. It's not actually not that
3: bad. This is cool. Yeah, this is it. This is the
5: SVIP pad. That's nice.
3: Yeah. Thank you for having me inside your house.
5: Thank you for coming. So
3: could you explain actually what this is, where we are?
5: So this house is part of SVIP, the Silicon Valley Internship Program. It's founded by a gentleman called Mike Hughes, who has uh, created this fantastic organization, which enables international engineers to have an opportunity to work for some of the best tech companies in silicon valley they spend a year where they get to learn skills and develop their technical skills as well as learn to really understand what it means to be an entrepreneur here in silicon valley so it's a pretty cool situation he's a brit he's a brit himself yeah
3: and he's the ceo of loop loop up
5: yes Yeah, his uh, main company is LoopUp and his passion project or company is SVIP.
3: Why don't we start with how you ended up on the West Coast?
5: Uh, Sorry, how old are you? I'm now 26. Okay. So uh, when I was at UCL in London, I was getting kind of bored. It was the summer and I started taking part in business pitch competitions. And at the time, I wasn't really familiar with the words startup or tech entrepreneur, but there was something exciting about it. So I got involved, I pitched a medical devices startup idea and we won first place and we ended up winning the Global Entrepreneurs Challenge, which is pretty huge. And later on, I just kind of got the pitch competition bug and started getting involved, meeting lots of entrepreneurs, lots of technologists. And so, sorry,
3: what was the product?
5: So, the product was a medical device that was designed for the NHS to track cardiovascular diseases. So, what we discovered is that the NHS loses a lot of money, millions of dollars, on patients who are prone to cardiovascular diseases. And most of them don't get treated until the later stage. So, anyone that is predisposed or has it in their kind of uh, family tree, this device would track their symptoms and would send that data to the NHS so that they could get appointments ahead of time. Where this is particularly effective is for the elderly. So a lot of patients who are at home. Um, so was this like a wristband or something? There was a wristband, yeah.
3: What happened to the product?
5: Great question. So
3: you, so you won the competition. <laughs> yeah. Which meant what? Did you get some money or?
5: Yeah. So we won some money and we also won the London Entrepreneurs Challenges, which is where we actually ended up getting quite a bit of money. We ended up taking this product idea to actually building it. So my team ended up not doing it. We were all students. Some, some were physics students. Some were So you were still a student at the time. So I was still a student at the time. And I decided to take a year out and really invest my time and energy into, into creating something. By the end of the year, we had a prototype, which we'd built in China. We had the software built in um, London. And I was busy talking to anyone in the medical industry who would give the time of day to speak to me.
3: How does a student in London get a prototype of a, what sounds like a quite complex medical device built in China?
5: That's an interesting question. So there's two parts to it. One part you work your butt off. And uh, you know, I was a student, so money wasn't coming in either way. So what I ended up doing was freelancing. So I freelanced as a producer to earn the money.
3: Producer of what?
5: TV promotion, so I was working at Sky. Freelance TV producer? Yeah.
3: And then using that money to pay Chinese manufacturers? Yes. How do you find a Chinese manufacturer though?
5: A lot of research, but also reaching out to companies who are having their products built in China. So I'd met a couple of tech entrepreneurs who had their products built in China and realized that it's a lot more affordable to do it that way. But also seeing as this was an initial prototype, which we wanted to test with the NHS, It had to be produced of a certain quality, so it couldn't have just been me and a small engineering team building it here in London. It made sense to do it that way.
3: You get the prototype built, and then?
5: We were uh, pretty fortunate in the sense that our prototype was was not just like an average little prototype. As I said, we actually worked with a Chinese company for six months to really make sure that this product worked. We'd done a lot of small pilots, uh, and then we reached out to the NHS. By that stage, we felt pretty confident things were moving forward until I realized that there was many, many things against me. So the initial vision was to build this prototype, partner with the NHS, and get the NHS to start trialing it in different boroughs. So we'd already selected boroughs that we wanted to work with. And these were communities where cardiovascular disease was at its highest rate and we wanted to show that this product can actually help in the space of preventative medicine. That was the vision and we came to face a lot of struggles, one of which was that no one at the time really cared about wearable devices. It just seemed, it wasn't even a buzzword at that
3: time. it was like Fitbit and that's kind of it.
5: Exactly, yeah. So um, especially the NHS, which is such an archaic old traditional system funded by the government so it was very difficult to penetrate that market we didn't have the resources the mentorship the really the network to make that happen my gender and my age really played against me so i'd go to these meetings with uh the royal medical society and they would say this is a wonderful idea you should continue with your education come back to us at a later stage once you've done your phd and Et cetera, right. et
3: Once you tick some more boxes. Exactly. So eventually, you basically had to give up on that idea.
5: I said two things to myself: someone else will build this, and the second thing was, I need to be in the right place for the next idea to to really happen. Two years later, when I moved to Silicon Valley, I met a company that was doing exactly what what I was doing, and they asked me to join. And I worked with them for a little while, more of an advisor position teaching them what I had learned throughout my process and journey. And the second thing I received an email from one of my professors who said, I'm so sorry I didn't believe in you with a TechCrunch link to an article of a company who had raised like millions of dollars based on the same idea.
3: How did that email make you feel?
5: It was an interesting moment. It was very unexpected because yeah. that was the second week, I believe, that I'd moved to Silicon Valley. So I was in the throes of understanding what this world was all about and just receiving that email took me back in time. Right. I realized that anyone can do it. The fact that we'd gone so far without a single dollar meant that you know, there was a lot of potential there. But there are real challenges that you have to face and being at the right place at the right time is one of them and unfortunately I wasn't at the right place all the right time. Right. There was comfort knowing that my professor realized that there was potential and I think that's that's all I really needed.
3: You tried that then that kind of doesn't work out. How'd you end up out here?
5: So uh, in early 2015 we decided that this idea isn't going to really work and I... Won another business pitch competition and use the funding for that Wait,
3: hold on so did you pitch the same product or no. is this something different
5: no actually what i'd pitched pitched was another idea that had kind of come about whilst i was working at sky as a freelancer they had a bunch of construction going on and i would go and have conversations with the builders and talk to them about challenges that they faced and uh, I mean, you just walk
3: up to builders and be like hey what's makes your life what would make your job easier <laughs>
5: It was it was a little bit more friendlier than that. <laughs> right, like right, right. by the way that place does really good sandwiches if you guys want a sandwich. Right, 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 and then right. that's how it happened and I learned a lot actually through these interactions that this giant construction company had hired lots of subcontractors and these subcontractors belonged to lots of micro little construction companies. And uh, I kind of asked them questions and I came up with an idea to build software for the construction industry that would enable small construction teams to be able to have the power that large construction companies have because the software that large construction companies use costs millions of dollars they're usually the kind of oracle type of companies will build it for them but the small teams don't have anything apart from a spreadsheet and as intuitive as we can make a spreadsheet it can only do so much so yeah (laughs) that's that's what we ended up doing and that's the idea that brought me out here i ended up taking parts in draper university with the construction idea
3: i want to get to draper university but can we just stop because you've already you're already on your second idea and you won another pitch competition where does the um entrepreneurial itch come from
5: it comes from curiosity and actually knowing absolutely nothing. So, with the construction idea, it really did come from just these conversations that I'd had. And I wondered, like, why, why don't you guys have like a Slack type of software that can enable you to gather information, communicate more effectively with small, lean teams? And that's all it was.
3: Where are you from originally?
5: From Afghanistan.
3: I, obviously, I know the answer to that because we've spoken about this <laughs> yeah. through, But I think the. Um... The story of how you ended up in London and your kind of life experience, I think, is quite informative as to why why you're so determined to start a company, etc. So I don't know if Mm you could kind of give a brief history of that.
5: Uh, I was born in Afghanistan. My family were very, very patriotic, so they stayed during the wars until our house got bombed. My mom had just given birth to me, so I was a premature baby, and she had to escape the country without my father because it was too dangerous for them to travel together.
3: And you obviously weren't in the house when it got bombed.
5: We were. So it was uh, it was an interesting... It, well, I don't have any were, rem- yeah, memories. Right.
3: But you had were about to be born or were just born?
5: I was just born, yeah. So yeah. you're a
3: premature baby and your house gets bombed.
5: Yeah. Then we moved. And it was a long journey moving out of Kabul, which is like the capital, to a place of safety. And we ended up crossing the borders of Afghanistan to Peshawar, which is like a part of land that belongs to Pakistan but there's always been conflict between in that area Most and were you just
3: driving to the border were you walking or planes trains and automobiles type of situation we
5: were in a um, massive trucks or buses I think it was more of a bus than a truck that just had lots of families lots of mothers and children trying to get to safety the Taliban or the Soviets whoever knew that you know families were escaping would stop them and take anything that they had right you know any money any gold anything that they had so it was a a traumatic experience for any family that had gone through that and we ended up in pakistan for seven years
3: were you in a camp or was you were you in a house or both
5: yeah both we were for a little while but seven years is a long time so if you've been displaced you you're just in survival mode so you will do anything to make life better for yourself and so we were there for seven years um, initially. And then we finally were able to move to London.
3: Wow. How were you making ends meet? Was your, your parents found jobs there? Are they entrepreneurs themselves? Or
5: Actually, I remembered something yesterday which totally blew my mind. My father is an entrepreneur. When we were in Pakistan, he decided that he needed to earn money somehow. So he opened like an electrical shop because he was an electrical engineer. So he would bring in these TVs and radios and things and get them fixed. But the most important thing was that he would teach kids that were displaced. All of my cousins right now that are engineers are engineers because of my father. And so that that, that realization really blew my mind because he was helping people at the time whilst trying to make a living himself. And I remember being four years old going to the little workshop, seeing circuit boards, playing around with those circuit boards and causing havoc. But I I remember loving it. And my first experience in London was going to my first school, not knowing a word of English and sitting in a class where they gave us lots of little different pieces. They gave us a battery, a light bulb, crocodile clips, and like a, a light switch. And they told us to connect these thing and things and turn the light bulb on, and for a, you know for a kid that was seven years old, none of them had that experience, but I had because in a, in Pakistan I'd seen my dad do all sorts of stuff, so that was nothing. And I remember putting it together really, really quickly and lifting my hand with a light bulb on, and it took the other kids like I think two hours to put put that thing together.
3: And so you, as a little girl who didn't speak English, kind of just show up at class and be like. That light bulb actually goes on.
5: Yeah, and then I became <laughs> teacher's pet and forever hated. So, right. <laughs> for any immigrant kid, do not do that. Do not do that.
3: <laughs> and so you went to UCL, and then you try this first business that doesn't work out. Then you win this business, this pitch competition. Was that the Draper University one, or was that a separate one that was in the UK?
5: That was that it? was a separate one in in, in the UK, but. The one at Draper, I was a finalist, so it was, it was a tie between me and one other startup.
3: Right. So that was this, this construction software idea. Yeah. Did you apply online from the UK and then come over there and try, come over here and try to pitch? And that was how you got over here.
5: I graduated. And the day after, I found out that there's this program called Draper University. I quickly applied for it. And I think I was close to the end of the deadline for the applications. They gave me a scholarship and I flew out the next week.
3: Oh, so it happened that quick.
5: It was very quick.
3: So Draper University, if you could explain what that is, because that's by Tim Draper, who's obviously a very well-known and um, Mm -hmm. prominent venture capitalist here.
5: Draper University is a six-week entrepreneurship program based in San Mateo in this incredible building, which is a giant entrepreneur's residence. In my cohort, we had 70 entrepreneurs from all around the world, from Jordan and Israel and Egypt and everywhere around the world. These were some of the brightest kids who had come with business ideas or businesses and really keen to understand how to raise capital in Silicon Valley and how to pitch an idea. And so a lot of things like the elevator pitch, that's something that's very American. So getting their heads wrapped around how to present their ideas and businesses in a compelling way to an American venture capitalist was an actual skill set to learn. That's what the university is. It's a, it's a ground to really make sure that these entrepreneurs are equipped with the skills that they need. But more importantly, it's about making you realize what skills you innately have and what makes you and defines you as an entrepreneur that will kind of stand the tough times.
3: Right. And how do you find that out?
5: In the most interesting way. Uh, so <laughs> the entire six weeks is really designed to break you.
3: Wait, like basic training in the military?
5: Oh, Absolutely. Give me me
3: some examples.
5: So without ruining the program for anyone that takes decides to do it, the minute that you're, you're there, you're given these challenges, you're put in teams, you're given lots of different, both entrepreneurship challenges. You end up doing lots of hackathons. So the first thing that you face is sleep deprivation. You know, everything has a sense of urgency. You're doing all these projects, you're sleeping. I think I probably slept two hours for a couple of weeks. And it really does drive you crazy after the third week. Uh, not to mention that you're jet-lagged in a different country, dealing with a different climate. And then one of the weeks is called Survival Week, where they take you to the middle of nowhere. They wake you up at 4 a.m. You're basically dragged outside. They give you $50. They take your phones. And you have to travel from one area to another area, so past the Golden Gate Bridge. And then a bus picks you up, and they take you to somewhere unknown. And uh, So you
3: have to... You use 50 bucks to get... And 50 bucks around the Bay Area gets you nothing. Gets you like half a sandwich. Exactly. Can you say how you got there?
5: So you had to get to uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. And then it's another one hour, two hour, God knows how many hours, till you get to the actual final destination. But none of us are told where that final destination is. Wilderness of California.
3: And then what happens when you get to the wilderness?
5: When you're there... It's uh, insane challenges from building rafts to cycling uphill for six miles plus to lots of strenuous military activities. And the great thing was we had someone from the military who was there throughout the whole week. You had people with injuries, people who dropped out, people who just got mentally broken down by exhaustion and by the difficulty. Did you see of the people challenges.
3: actually kind of lose it? Yeah. Really?
5: Yeah. It sounds
3: like a terrible, terrible experience.
5: And the people that kind of uh, either got injured or just couldn't do it anymore, were um, there was a bus for them so that they could still be involved in the experience. But rather than taking part, they'd just be driven from one part to another part.
3: Right. And was everybody else kind of looking at the people on the bus like...
5: "Mm." No, actually, we were all so supportive (laughs) because we knew how tough it was. Right. You know?
3: I mean, I imagine this is mostly male.
5: Um, Yes. So that was the interesting part. So our, our cohort was the largest. We had 70. Usually the cohorts are around 40. So this was the largest group. And I think out of 70, we had 20 women, which is still a large number considering, but it was still relatively small. If you think about dividing 70 people in teams of five or six, you still have around one or two women in in each team.
3: Did you survive?
5: Yep. For me, it was interesting because what I realized is it's all about how you frame it. So for me, I saw that as an all camp America experience rather than (laughs) this is survival of the fittest. Right. And you know, whilst we're kayaking, there's like little sharks underneath the water and all these things, for me, that was like my American experience. So everything that we did was fun. I'd never cycled uphill on a tandem bike with three people.
3: There's four people on the bike?
5: The the tandem bike, obviously there's two seats, but we had a team of five. So we had to figure out a way to cycle people back and forth. So what ended up happening is two people sat on the tandem bike and I sat in the middle where there's no space to sit and had to just trust the person in front of me and behind me because if they fell, I'd be the one that'd be flying, not that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'd cycle uphill and downhill and uphill and downhill. Oh my God. Again, you you could either see that as torturous or you you could see it as one big adventure. (laughs) Um, And uh, at the end of this whole experience, Tim Draper said, who's up for more? You know, people hadn't showered for the week. They were exhausted. Some had been bitten by bugs and just, and, and I put my hand like, I'm up for more. And he said, okay, you can hike home. But, uh, I think, isn't this
3: like you're under like 50, 70 miles from where you need to get?
5: Yeah. Um, so so, how did that work? You know, he said that and, uh, was kind enough to think, think through what he just said and realize that it's probably fairly dangerous to have a girl that hasn't, that's not used to being in this part of the country, just hitchhiked back home on her own. So he was like, come on guys, who else is up? And kind of rallied a couple of people. And so uh, myself and three other guys hitchhiked back. We ended up walking to a certain point and it was probably one of the hottest days in, in uh, California. We ended up walking to a certain point and ended up in some interesting oyster farm. <laughs> and we ended up going there speaking to a group of people two women ended up giving us a ride back to San Francisco and from wow. there it was a lot easier to get back so what was meant to be a 2 hour bus ride for us ended up being the entire day i don't know how many hours but we got back probably at 11 p.m.
3: <laughs> it almost sounds like a tv show it sounds like survivor or something
5: it actually was a tv show but luckily i was not in the tv show part of it but it was oh, on abc it. it was on abc family yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. The previous uh, cohort was on uh, ABC Family. Right. Yeah.
3: And so what do you get out of that? Because obviously you come back and then you, you've won this, this this pitch competition. I presume then you actually pitched Tim Draper and try to raise money? Yes. And so what happens?
5: It's an interesting format because for someone like Tim Draper and his uh, military sidekick, that whole... Survival Week was a way for them to really see who had the mental toughness to persevere and who could be creative and frugal. And for the entrepreneur, I think it really was an internal process of understanding who you are when you're pushed against your will. For me, that's something that's happened my entire life, forced out of a country, then you know, surviving in, in Pakistan, feeling very, very displaced and uh, a second class citizen really understanding how that could affect me. This was one of those situations where I was pushed against my will. Most of the entrepreneurs had come to Silicon Valley hoping that they could have like a fancy, glamorous, meet this VC, meet that VC. And they experienced this thing called survival week. But I think people took what, what they could from that experience. So, some of them realized that maybe there were some areas that they needed to work on. Some of them realized that they had really formidable leadership skills. Others realized that they needed to really work on their listening. So, you know, this unusual construct of survival week really enabled young entrepreneurs to understand their strengths and weaknesses. So for that, I think it was an amazing experience. So what happens after that is you come back with exhaustion and everything else. You prepare for for the pitch and you do your pitch competition in front of like a hundred VCs. They're all invited to San Mateo, to Draper University and the startups pitch. They get feedback the top 10 get invited to have a meeting with Tim. And that's how it starts. And, the, and so you made the top 10. Yeah.
3: And so you raised money.
5: Not initially through Tim, but the network that was there. Right. So the VCs that had come, a lot of them came up to me afterwards and, right. and spoke to me. So that was really great.
3: So you raised money, and then you're off to the races, hooray! And then what?
5: Well, Danny, this is a, this is a story <laughs> of many ups and downs, as you can already tell. It's interesting because you hear these glamorous stories of entrepreneur goes to Silicon Valley, raises X million of dollars, and yes. then happily after, uh, happily ever after. This
3: usually because it's uh, when people tell these stories to people like me, they kind of leave out all the kind of the long nights and the soul-searching moments. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's raise some money and it was all kind of great and blah, 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 blah.
5: And I think it's important to tell both. I think those cautionary tells help the naive entrepreneurs yes. get a better understanding of what they're really getting themselves into. So yes, we were able to get term sheets and raise some money. For me, that was great. Six months in, in Silicon Valley, I became a startup mentor and an entrepreneur and resident at Draper University. And managed to get some money and I went back to London and realized that things weren't as rosy as they seemed to be despite the fact that I had reached my goal.
3: You went back to London?
5: I went back to London for very real reasons which was visas. So right. you need to have you need to be on on the right visa here. Most immigration lawyers charge yeah. quite a fair bit oh, for I that know. stuff. I was on a tourist visa on an ESTA visa. So for the time I was here I was I couldn't actually work or earn a living. Yeah. So I went back and the idea was to continue the business for at least a couple of months in London just because it was a good base point between, you know, Asia, the Middle East and yeah. of course America and we'd already built our relationships in Silicon Valley. But it you know, it wasn't the dream, despite the fact that we ticked a lot of the boxes. My co-founder left when I went back to London. He was no longer interested in what we were doing.
3: As this co-founder was he a friend from university, or how did you know him?
5: He was actually a friend that I'd met in Silicon Valley. So oh, he, okay. that that was one of the things that I was really looking for: meeting like-minded people. Right, right, right. Uh, and sorry to to be the Debbie Downer, but this is <laughs> this is one of those stories where. <laughs> That's what happened. We, we raised money. We reached our goals. We went back to our home countries feeling really happy. Where and was then he
3: based?
5: The Middle East. We went back to our home countries realizing that the visa situation isn't that great. More importantly, now that we'd raised money, did we actually want to spend the next 10 years doing this? And that was the question that that I asked my co-founder, and he said no. Oh. You know, six months is a tough journey to be in a different country. We were just... Yeah. Very sleep deprived, working really, really hard. That was a really important question to ask. Like, is this something that you see yourself doing for 10 years? Because if you want it to be successful, you need to dedicate at least 10 years. And he Um, said no. He said no. I went back to the VCs the next morning. (laughs) I like got them on a Skype call and I was just honest, told them about this experience. And I was so amazingly surprised, Danny, that they said to me, Sophia, just we'll give you a fraction of the funding that we said we'd give you. Continue working on this and, you know, see where it takes you. Wow. I didn't know what to say.
3: Right. Because you assumed that if half the team had gone and you hadn't even really started the company yet, that they'd be like, sorry, we'll take our money back. Exactly. Did you keep trying or did you actually just say, no, this is, I'm going to do something else?
5: Yeah. it, it, It took a lot of soul searching. That's when I sat down after that had happened. It was interesting because the first time around with a medical device, I really pushed myself to the point of burnout. And the second time I was like, okay, I'm going to do it better this time. I'm going to go to Silicon Valley. I'm going to do it, surround myself with the right people, get the right advice, raise capital. And all of that did happen. I ended up even finding someone to work with. This time around, when my co-founder left and I had that conversation with the VCs, I decided that I still have time to learn and maybe I should... Use that as an opportunity. Maybe this was a good thing that happened. And what was interesting is everyone around me kept saying, Sophia, like, just keep going. Take the VC money. Like, continue building this. learn it, Use it as a learning experience. Uh, and for me, I always said, like, if anyone has invested in you, make sure that you do not let them down. And by taking them, their money without fully understanding what you're doing is, is a problem. Not- How much
3: money was it going to be?
5: It was enough to help us like at least go through the right. first two years. Wow. So it was a good amount. Right. And that's why I decided to give the money back because I wanted you gave to do the it. the money back. I gave the money back, the full amount of money. I told them that I'd move to Silicon Valley, continue working here for a little bit. And the next time I'm ready, I'll reach back out to them. Wow. And I still have a very good relationship with them. Right. So you so. gave the
3: money back and then you're what, just at a loose end.
5: Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was an interesting thing. I doubted myself after I did that. For a very long time, I doubted myself. I questioned whether I made the right decision, whether I was self-sabotaging or self-deprecating, and all right, these right. words are running through my head. And I questioned, if I was a man, would I have done that? Or would I have just right. said, heck yeah, I can do this. Yeah. But I decided to, to go in with my intuition. And two months after, I ended up meeting the CEO of Girls in Tech, and she hired me as director of global partnerships and that started off a new journey
3: here yeah obviously girls in tech i can guess what that is but what exactly does girls in tech do and what were you doing there
5: Girls in Tech is the world's largest women in tech organization. It's a global community of entrepreneurs and technologists. The organization runs in six continents across 36 countries. And really the the core focus is empowerment, engagement, and education for women in tech. And so ranging from doing boot camps to hackathons, to virtual uh, coding courses. It's really there to equip women with the skills that they need so that they can uh, compete in this market. Right. And so what I was doing at the organization was really focusing on how we can make this nonprofit organization scale in a way that we can create. Because it was quite
3: disparate, right? It was kind of, it was a nonprofit.
5: Yeah, so I mean, that's what my role was, Director of Global Partnerships. So what I ended up doing is really focusing on strategic international partnerships, working with Facebook and Cisco and really large companies who had an international interest, working with them to bring resources to the regions that we were working in and empower those companies to hire women locally, whether it was in India or Taiwan or wherever else it was. How long were you there? So I was there for just under two years. And during that time, I was appointed CEO of the organization
3: that takes us up to kind of present day and you've left you've gone you're no longer at girls and tech
5: yes so i'm no longer at girls and tech as of december 31st right, but well, well. i would say for anyone that's interested in doing things that they would prevent themselves from doing so most people will plan to wait until they're in their 60s before they consider working or or founding a non I would strongly advise them to do it sooner. It's incredibly important to understand the challenges non- non-profits face. If you can make it at a non-profit, you can definitely make it a startup because non-profits are a lot harder, by 10 times harder running a non-profit than it is running a because startup. Because you don't have money. Exactly. You can't fall back on VC money. And so that was the most powerful thing I could take away from my experience there. Because during the time that I worked at the organization, I created funding streams that would enable the organization to be really stable. And by stable, I mean, it wouldn't have to necessarily rely on sponsorship or donations for it to continue doing the work it was doing and to scale out its team. So that for me was uh, a huge learning and, and a great experience, which I'm hoping to plug into the next thing I do.
3: What is the next thing?
5: I'm, I'm definitely at the crossroads, so you've caught me at, at an interesting point, Danny. So really, I'm looking at a couple of different spaces right now and looking into how technology is impacting humanity and what that means. Lots of companies say, we're building this and this is, it's going to change the world. I'm really interested in ethics and understanding how is this going to really impact humans? And just looking at the wave of social media, Facebook and a lot of these companies, how is it affecting millennials? What you're seeing is productivity levels are lower than they've ever been. Mental health has been lower than it's ever been. And it's fascinating to see that technologies that we've built to empower ourselves are actually really taking away our sense of self and our power. I'm hoping that whatever I end, whatever I end up doing stems from that. But to keep myself going, I've... Uh, Founded an organization called Afghan Innovation. This is my passion project, really connecting a third world country to the first world country. As you know, as I mentioned, I'm from Afghanistan. I saw a photo a couple of months ago of kids typing on brick computers. Brick. Brick computers. They'd kind of put together, laid yeah. out bricks and pretended yeah. it was like a laptop and it just hit me really hard. There's a huge divide between what kids are learning here and what's happening in those countries. Yeah. And it's just a matter of providing them, well, it's not just a matter of providing them the resources, but really understanding what challenges they're facing and how to bring communities together to, to have a positive impact.
3: And how have you found it, just given, obviously, all of your life experiences, was, which is in many ways very harrowing, how do you find it coming out here and talking to other entrepreneurs who... You know, especially these days in the midst of this kind of the bro culture and all of this, you know, so (laughs) heavily male and and white and I presume privileged.
5: Where do I begin? (laughs) I have to say that I feel incredibly fortunate to be living in this day and age because, you know, just being part of an organization like Girls in Tech and other organizations that empower women entrepreneurs and also seeing how companies are reciprocating and really changing their company culture to encourage more women. So you're encouraged? I think so. I, I, I feel like this is the right, actually what I feel like is I, I feel like we're just at the cusp with the movement that's happening with the Me Too movement and changes in Silicon Valley culture, Hollywood, every other industry is crumbling and reshaping itself. And so it's the, the most exciting time to be in tech. So right. I, I, I feel encouraged and I feel empowered.
3: And do you feel like you're at a disadvantage though?
5: I mean, that's a that's a mind frame. I could say that I'm at the most disadvantaged position I could ever be. You know, immigrant, ex-refugee, living in Silicon Valley. You know, I could look at it that way, but I think that I'd rather see myself as empowered.
3: Right. The next thing, you're still trying to figure that out.
5: So I have a couple of options, and I will let you know as soon as <laughs> right. that comes to yeah. comes to more of a defined solution but i'm definitely excited to have the freedom to be able to choose what i want to do
3: why are you so determined to do it here when you could be in london where there are venture capitalists where there Mm -hmm. is uh, (laughs) where you have a visa or you have a passport yeah why why here
5: that's exactly what my mother asked um England is great. So when I was working on my startup in in London, I did have support. I was funded through these pitch competitions. I was really supported as a female entrepreneur. So I think London is a great ecosystem. However, there's something in the mindset that's different. And I think the barrier to entry is lower here than it is in England. When I moved here, within the six months, I was able to interact with Tim Draper and Elon Musk. And wow. that wasn't something that felt unusual. That right. didn't feel so far-fetched. In England, something like that would have been impossible. I think England is on is on the right track. The tech ecosystem is great there. There's lots of phenomenal companies there. The hub is amazing. And generally, life in London is fantastic. It is. But for me, as a frugal entrepreneur, this is the place to be.
3: As a frugal entrepreneur, San Francisco, the most expensive city in America. <laughs>
5: Yes and no. Yes. Okay. So you caught me out on that. San Francisco is the most expensive city to be in. But when I say frugal entrepreneur there are people who will do things for you here and work with you because they believe in you. And I've never experienced that anywhere else. That's magical. London is also the most ex- one of the most expensive this cities. This is true. London so is there no, is cheap. The yeah. only difference is I could live at home in London, right. rent-free. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's slightly different. I have considered moving to Davis or another part of California where, Ooh, where da- it's...
3: Davis is, smells like cow patties all the I time. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, I would not go there.
5: <gasps> okay, that's good to know.
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and what was your... Inter- how did you come into contact with uh, Elon Musk? What was that about?
5: Oh, this is going to sound ridiculous here's and this is the magic about san francisco i went to someone's birthday party and uh that person happens to be a very good friend of elon musk's which i i didn't know they went to school together and uh he was there for the birthday and so it was amazing to see how people interacted with this giant of a entrepreneur and everyone there danny was you know seven time entrepreneurs you know people who had uh you know serial entrepreneurs and they would walk up to him say hi, shake his hand, and then kind of freeze up and and not know what to really talk about. Right. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to go up there and be like, hi, Elon. (laughs) And so I I went up there and and I spoke to him and we ended up speaking for like 30 minutes or so. Oh, wow. Whilst there was like a massive queue around him, people had just come and shaken his hand, spoken to him, had a very awkward two-second interaction and then walked away. Some people came up asking for photos. He turned them down and, you know, it was a very uncomfortable environment for him. And, and I just went there and just spoke to him and... Did you pitch him? I actually didn't know. Right. But I, we ended up talking about um, DeepMind, whose founder is uh, Demis Hazabas yeah, who went su- to
3: super interesting.
5: my university and Elon Musk is, has strong opinions. About
3: artificial intelligence. About
5: artificial intelligence. So we just spoke about things that we're both interested in. He's just another human being. And yeah. it was great.
3: All right, before we go, having visited the SVIP house, I thought it would be worth crossing town to have a very quick chat with the man who started the program. Michael Hughes is the chief executive of LoopUp, which is the first company to list on the stock market after Brexit. So I stopped by his office in San Francisco while he was in town last week to talk about why he started the Silicon Valley internship program and how he ended up in San Francisco in the first place. So I thought it would just be an interesting part of not only Sophia's story, but also just an example of a Brit who made it out here and is now paying it forward. So enjoy.
4: I guess in a nutshell, the SVIP is a one-year program that tries to take aspiring... Entrepreneurs from the UK and give them opportunity to come over here to the to the US work with startups in the Bay Area and we try to run a program alongside that to Teach them a little bit about entrepreneurship as they go and to be very honest one of the big things we found about people in the UK is On average they seem to be less willing to take that first leap and that willingness to give it a go and You know potentially fall over and not do so well and then get to get back up again and have another go
3: so when did you start SVIP?
4: We started in 2013. And the genesis of it was almost by mistake. So every now and again, any entrepreneur who's British in, in the Bay Area gets invited over to the consulate and you, you know, meet with the great and the good of the UK, or come over and say something like, how do we make London just like Silicon Valley? What are the, just like every what other are the policies yeah, and yeah, all those yeah. kind of things? And there was a just a whole group of entrepreneurs around the table who were all British. And they said the real secret about, you know, the Bay Area, the thing that's the dominant differentiator is really about attitude.
3: In other words, a uh, a willingness to
4: bullshit aggressively. (laughs) Exactly. A core skill of mine, I think you have (laughs) find. So, you know, we had that little meeting and in that session I said, well, wouldn't it be great if someone did something where we could take... The best and the brightest coming out of British universities, and instead of them all going into the city and working for Goldman or whatever, we could give them an alternative path where they would get a bit of exposure to the secret source of, of the Bay Area, learn a little bit, and then hopefully take that back to the UK to infuse that into the, that point nascent startup scene in, in London.
3: So you were, you kind of said, "Oh, this this would be like a great idea," and then looked around the room, and then what did everybody look back at you?
4: The then Consulate general, very supportive about the the, the whole idea, Is said, "Well, yeah, Priya," she said, "Well, let's let's try and get this going," and I thought, "Well, I think we can probably you know do a little pilot where we'd be able to get, you know, one or two people to come over, and in the worst case, they could work for our company or something like that." So I, you know, you, you did that thing where. I called a bunch of the people at the university and said, if we were to have a thing that existed like this, do you think anybody would like to, to come? A bunch of people said yes. And then then I actually reached out to the, the Stanford community um, and uh, asked that group, if we could get you know, these young, talented developers to come over, would you be interested in hiring them and, and paying for them? Because I had no money to run the program. Yeah. And they said overwhelmingly yes.
3: Lots of people have ideas. Why did you actually... What actually made you say, I, I should do this?
4: That is a tricky question, actually. I, if I'd have been able to have that sort of exposure when I was younger, I think that would have made a big difference to some of the choices that I made in my life. So it was, there should exist, this weird arbitrage between the engineering talent in the UK and the need for talent here in the Bay Area created this weird market mismatch, which meant with basically not much money... I could get the thing going. I didn't need to find sponsors. I didn't need to be, you know, under the cost for anyone else. So the thing is being Because it was
3: quite easy to sell this to comp- or get
4: people to hire them because yeah. they're cheap. Companies like it, graduating students like it. What's great about the community here in the Bay Area, um, as you well know, is there's quite a good pay it forward thing. So we had the co-founders of Huddle were just moving out at that time. They they were very helpful. Pete Flint from Trulia has been really helpful. The British Consulate's been really helpful. A whole bunch of of the great and the good have, without any need to, have been amazingly helpful in, uh, you know, helping us to keep the thing rolling along.
3: How many people have gone through it now?
4: So now we're up to about 70-odd. And so do they all stay at uh, the SVIP crash pad so when you rock up in, in San Francisco you have no credit you have usually have no money it's brutal and yes. um, and you have to go and rent something and the average rent here is just off the charts so we thought we needed to find a way to to kind of house everyone so we had an opportunity to buy this building that was a fairly. I think you've seen it. It looks a bit like Dracula's summer home. It's a it's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful place. You know, we sort of decked it out as as best as my interior decorating skills would allow. Oh, so you've, um, uh, you've done a fine job, sir. Thank you very much. That's the place where you know we got six people in there this year. We realized after doing it for a, for a few years, it was becoming it was really very male dominated. We made a big push to try and hire, uh, try and bring in more women. And that just just wasn't working. We'd have, you know, out of 300 applicants that we were getting like five women, something like that, which is really... Yeah. Wow. It was awful. So what we did is we said, well, why don't we open up the program to basically any female developers from anywhere who want to do something entrepreneurial? This year and the year before last, we've been able to have a 50-50 split between men and women, which is... It's embarrassing to say that that's actually, feels like an achievement in tech when it yeah, should be just the, yeah. you know, it should be just the base of the thing. But as, as, as you well know, that's sadly the way it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is an
3: achievement. So you're obviously the founder of LoopUp. Co-founder. Co-founder. Which was the first tech company to go to to, to IPO float. after Brexit. Yeah. After Brexit. Fantastic timing.
4: It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and LoopUp does what?
4: We are in the world of remote meetings, which is a fancy way of saying conference calls. What we attempt to do is try to make your everyday conference call experience just a bit less painful. We basically strip out all the features and all the funkiness that you get with other software products. We're still a software product, and we try to make the process of getting on your call, and, and we focus on the the least technical person we can think of in the company. So it's almost, it's resulted in a relative, what looks like a Fisher-Price version of conferencing, if you like. So how did you end
3: up out here?
4: So I originally came out to go to business school. uh, Stanford? Went to Stanford in uh, 1995. When I got to Stanford, you know, the whole experience of going to business school, I was expecting someone to sort of tap me on the shoulder and open up their raincoat and show me the secrets to business. You know, as great as Stanford was, you realize that it is basically a degree in, in, in common sense and the bleeding obvious, if you, if, if you forgive, the, <laughs> forgive the, uh, the pejorative.
3: Well, look, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck with the, uh, with the program going forward. It's Thanks cool. very
4: much for coming in. Very, very, nice to, very nice to see you again.
3: And that is all the time we have. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before you go, please take a moment. Stop in Apple. Give a little rating or review in the iTunes store. It really does help. Um, and you can find me as you always can during the week at thetimes.co.uk in the newspaper at the Sunday Times and on Twitter at Danny Fortson F O R T S O N. Or if you want to email me, it's Danny F O R T S O N at Sunday Times.co.uk. Thanks so much, and talk to you next week.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.